coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, a special episode. We salute those men who ran for president on major party tickets and lost more than once. Presenting Even the Losers, Part 2. We continue to thank you for your continued interest and ears for DB Comedy Presents The Electables. We are coming up to the end of all of the presidents that America has had up until this moment. But we're not quite there yet, and any help that you can give us, or any thanks you would like to give us, would be appreciated. If you haven't, please subscribe to DB Comedy Presents The Electables on whatever marketplace you are listening to this podcast. Also, don't forget to like and recommend so more folks can listen. If you like what you hear, please leave us a tip or a donation, if you will. Go to fracturedatlas.org and look up DB Comedy. Fractured Atlas is our fiscal sponsor. Any tip or donation you leave us is tax-deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. Please keep supporting us because we are plotting life beyond the presidents, and we'd like you to keep listening. Thank you. Uh, it's good to see you, Dr. Nair. And it's good to read your name on screen, Mr. Riley. So, have you been living the life of Riley? <laughs> By definition. Who else's life am I going to live? I was attempting to make a joke. Yes, and I was too classy to point out how lame it was. Anyway, uh, why did you want to have this Zoom meeting? Because I'm hoping your deliberate invisibility can help me understand the historical invisibility of twice-failed presidential candidate Thomas E. Dewey. For the Thomas Dewey, the loser now will be later to not win chapter of my book. Uh, I don't know much about Dewey, but I am an expert on Huey and Louie. And I look forward to collaborating with you on a biography of either Governor Long or Minister Farrakhan. But as for the Republican nominee... Goodbye, Dr. Nair. Riley defeats Nair. Anyway, so here we are, the regular gang. Joe. Paul. I'm Sandy. I'm Sylvia. I'm Tommy. I'm Patrick. (laughs) Chelsea here. James. All right. Um, Well, then, um, interestingly, we have this president with Debs who runs during World War One, which is interesting. And lo and behold, our next gentleman on the lineup is someone that also starts to run during wartime, but sort of has the distinction of actually having thought he had won. (laughs) Yes. Why did they, why did Thomas Dewey run twice? As has been pointed out, just a little background on Thomas Dewey. He was Chelsea. From Owasso, Michigan, y'all. That's right. (laughs) Owasso, Michigan. When he was born, his father was so dedicated to the Republican Party that he sent an announcement saying that a 10-pound Republican was born to Mr. and Mrs. Dewey. He studied opera at the University of Michigan. Awesome. Uh, Also, he was, and this is for James here, Thomas Dewey was in Phi Mu Alpha. 
Go Symphonians. Oh, hey, that was, uh, <laughs> is my fraternity. Notably, Thomas A. Dewey, not the inventor of the Dewey Decimal System. Nor did he no. uh, lead the U.S. fleet into Manila Bay. He was just... He was not an admiral. He was a very ambitious, very competent fellow with absolutely, I would say, no convictions except for the advancement of Thomas E. Dewey. Who he reminds me of is Aaron Burr. Um, Wait, whoa! We didn't That's talk good. About, even though he really <laughs> only had one, one real presidential failure uh, in 1800. But if you want to count all the times he was arrested and tried for treason for trying to create his own country, then that could be a, a whole other thing. Well, but I mean, anyways, that only happened like the one time, right? Dewey did that. It happened at least twice because it said. Burr. <laughs> Burr was arrested multiple times for trying to create his own country in Alabama. Well, if Burr had been arrested, Thomas E. Dewey would have made sure he went to jail because he went to Columbia Law School when his opera career never launched. Yeah, why why did he why did he abandon the opera? He wasn't very good. Ah. That he never the abandoned of, the opera of the opera. opera abandoned him. <laughs> that gets in the way of fewer people than you think. And so he went to Columbia Law School. That's why he became a New York politician. And he became, I don't know quite, he was never a district attorney. He was some sort of special prosecutor, sort of subcontracted by the Manhattan District, who specialized in mob cases. Hmm. I think he put yeah. Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano, Lucky Luciano, in jail. No small it, feat. Right. Yeah, they really. deported Luciano. Yeah. Yeah. He he didn't get them on. I don't know if he got them on racketeering charges or prostitution charges. But that was how he built his reputation. So, with, amongst this rogues gallery that we've been discussing, I have to say there is a major difference looking at Dewey versus all of the other folks. And that is that he, of all these candidates, had more legitimate reasons to run a second time than anybody else, given how ill Roosevelt was, how well he did against Roosevelt, the end of the war, and how weak Truman was. So of all of these candidates, this is the one that seems to be the one that yeah, you you actually and deserved the second shot because he had he, probably he was elected to probably the most successful you know the most successful stepping stone for the presidency since the Secretary of State job in the early 19th century. He was governor of New York. Hmm. Very much a stepping stone. And he was very young. He was the first presidential candidate born in the 20th century. And he almost got the nomination in twenty, despite a lack of elect, despite a lack of political experience, because the bench wasn't incredibly deep in nineteen forty. And because, you know, but, since we brought it up earlier, not a particular looker. Well, no, and having a Hitler, having a Hitler mustache in the nineteen forties was not your smartest political move. He widened it out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, it it turned into sort of a proto porn stash a little bit. I think he's got he's got a little bit of like uh, uh, uglier Tony Stark's dad. Ooh, yeah. that's exactly Ooh. what he is. Yeah, okay. Looking, thank looking you. at looking at his thirty eight uh, governor. Interesting. Sounds okay, flatterly. 
<laughs> no, no, <laughs> before, before no, in the in the Cap, first Captain America movies. I'm gonna see Dewey when he was a prosecutor. He was famous enough that there were film characters based on him. Yeah, it sounds right. In 1937, marked woman Humphrey Bogart played Thomas E. Dewey. I mean, you're doing something right if you get Bogey to play you. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) Time for another plate of laughs at Dumpy's Diner. Where the great can't wait to masticate. Our first course is sponsored by Victory Spread, the butter substitute so tasty that cows want it banned. With tonight's guest, Thomas E. Dewey. What's with the fancy checkered tablecloths, Dumpy? Oh, tonight, Minnie. We will welcome the man who will be inaugurated president next January. Ooh, is Eleanor coming too? Are we going to be in my day? I don't mean FDR, Minnie. I meant Tom Dewey. Wow. He must be pretty old by now. <laughs> my grandpa was a boy when that guy conquered the Philippines. No, 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 not, not that guy. I mean Thomas E. Dewey. Mm-hmm. He has a shot at the presidency since he's an internationalist, a progressive, and the governor of New York. New York governors always run hard for the White House so they can get the heck out of Albany. <laughs> There ain't a lot of difference between him and FDR. With one exception. His last name ain't Roosevelt. (laughs) Well, that name sure didn't hurt Teddy or Franklin. Uh, But by now, people are sick of voting for the same guy over and over. They want more of the same, but with a different name. (laughs) So if he wins, he'll need a cook. Why would he hire you? You're the worst cook in the world. Second worst after FDR's housekeeper, Henrietta Nesbitt. And just like Roosevelt, Dewey will want to prove he's a regular Joe by eating the same flavorless slop that everyone else does. Is Governor Dewey married? Sorry, Minnie. You're not going to be first lady. I already figured that. I just wondered if he can count on getting more than one vote. I'm counting on millions, miss. Millions and millions. Welcome to Dumpy's Diner, Governor Dewey. Thank you, Dumpy. Always glad to hobnob with the average voter. It reminds me of my humble roots back in Michigan. Oh, by the way, is your valet on a break? My chauffeur had to park the caddy himself. Oh, uh, well, you know how hard it is to find good help with the with the war and all that. Anyway, <laughs> please let our lovely waitress, Miss Minnie Stroney, grab your seat for you. Right this way, your Governor Nernitz. Say, anyone ever tell you that mustache makes you look like Clark Gable with smaller ears? (laughs) No, but I'm often confused with Humphrey Bogart, especially since Warner Brothers Pictures cast him as a thinly disguised version of me in their film Marked Woman. Bogey was playing you? Were you a persecutor? Oh, well, technically I was a prosecutor, but the men I sent to jail might think I persecuted them. Lucky Luciano, for one. Guess he wasn't that lucky after all, huh? <laughs> Can I start you off with a drink? A Blatt's beer? A glass of Don Juan red wine? I'll take a Mouton Rothschild 37, if you have it. Um, sorry? We only got 36 and 38. 
I'll be right back with your glass of water. So, uh, Governor Dewey, I'm given to understand that you are running for the presidency of our fine nation. Yes, I am, Dumpy. I'll give power back to the people. Boy, I'd appreciate that, Governor Dewey. My lights wasn't working when I left my apartment. <laughs> I mean political power, economic power. The voters of this country are tired of one-man rule. <laughs> Not me. I don't even have one man to get tired of. No, Minnie, I mean that America is sick of having an emperor. Did the Japanese win the war when I wasn't looking? If they had many, we'd be serving seaweed tonight instead of our delectable specials, such as... Oh, we got victory cheese patties, victory creamed eggs, and victory spaghetti, all made with victory spread. So there's no um, victory oysters Rockefeller? Victory Lobster Thermidor? Uh, Governor Dewey, you're gonna need a White House chef that makes real food. Like me. I ain't never even seen no lobster humidor. Really? It's not like lobster has been rationed. Why bother? No one can afford it anyway. Gee, Governor Dewey, I'm not sure a man of the people like yourself should have such gourmet tastes. Why should I suffer because of the artificial scarcity that the Roosevelt administration has inflicted on America? Maybe because it's better than the real scarcity that the Hoover administration inflicted on America. Now I don't understand all the Hoover hatred. Why must the Democratic Party always scare voters with the specter of Hoover? Probably because it works. It'll be a shame when the public learns the president's cook can't make no lobster Thermidor. <laughs> now, why would you say that, Dumpy? Are you saying I won't be able to find a decent chef when I'm elected? No. I'm saying looks like Henrietta Nesbitt is probably going to keep it chap. You're listening to Dumpy's Diner. Our next course will be brought to you by Victory Hose. Ladies, take off those stockings and support our troops. So, and again, of all of the candidates, he's probably the one we could have legitimately said he should have won. In 18... Well, like he could have won. Could have. Yeah, nineteen forty-four. I'm not going to give him that much credit because no, forty-eight. Has, you know, clearly, the, I mean, one, he was so boring that he didn't inspire a lot of bio any biographies until nineteen eighty-two. <laughs> but in a book I read that tried to try to convince me that the nineteen forty-four election was pivotal, which it was not, mm -hmm. except in as much as Roosevelt won. What really helped Dewey? Why he came so much closer than Wendell Wilkie or Alf Landon? or God knows Hoover did, was depressed vote turnouts. There were voters overseas. There was controversy about how ah. soldiers were going to vote. People were sick of politics. People were very preoccupied with their own lives. So the participation plummeted so low in 1944 that a Republican came close to beating Franklin Roosevelt. A good reminder that Churchill didn't survive World War II. You can't no, put it out. Yeah. Sure did. Didn't survive politically. Let's politically, yes. He did survive the war. I mean, no, that, we can that is one of those shocking the elections we want. I think in, in history, uh, but we have to remember that 
Churchill did come back and served as as prime minister again in the early 1950s. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Churchill is one of those people who I think at any point in his life you could have looked at him and go like you're living purely on spite. Yeah. And, and cigars. It will was. keep you, it will keep you going. Well, the, there was a conservative wing in the Republican Party and Dewey tried to bridge the gap between liberal Republicans and conservative Republicans by standing for absolutely nothing. <laughs> he had yeah, no policy was... proposals. I mean, part of that was the Democratic Party split itself into three parts with, uh, you know, Strom Thurmond and Henry Wallace also running in 48. So you didn't have to try that hard oh. to win as the Republican in 48. Uh, you probably should have tried harder than Henry than Dewey did. Yeah. Do we uh, know Dewey... what do we know what Dewey's uh campaign slogan was in 1944 besides like not Roosevelt? Uh, I don't think he had one. In 1948 was Unity. Did you actually find a campaign slogan, Chelsea? No, I wish. I'm... I think the struggle that certain American politicians, especially American politicians seeing the presidency have getting elected simply on good government credentials. Um, and that's yeah. kind of, that's Dewey's character right here, right? Like he's, he's not an ideologue. He doesn't have no strong political convictions. And, and even if he did as a politician in a party that's fractured between the kind of internationalist, more pro-government, you know, accepting of the New Deal Eastern wing and the kind of tafty, anti-union isolationist wing he's got to somehow bridge the gap between these two pretty different folks um and and, you know unfortunately i think the way he ends up doing that is rather than trying to settle the issue which i don't think he really had the credentials to do no um he just says well you know think whatever you want i'm thomas dewey i'm a good guy vote for me And, and that tends not to work i think dewey has a number of issues one is that while he may have been the major party nominee, he was never the most important person in the Republican Party, right? Yeah. Like that was I either Robert Taft no. or it was Herbert Hoover or it was someone Claire else. Luce. So there's no way for him to like be the leader in the party because he's not the leader in the party. There are other people who are the yeah. leaders in the party and he's just kind of the pretty face, if you will, that's been put out there to run for the presidency. Because he does look like if Clark Gable was ugly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and certainly right. you, were, you were gonna throw Robert Taft out there, God. Um, <laughs> so, so he, you know, he he kind of has this kind of an early version of what we might call like a, a prepackaged politician. He, he's there, he's there to be a face for a movement. Unfortunately, there's no actual movement there. And the other thing is there is that a movement it, in the Republican Party, but yeah, Thomas Dewey does not represent it, right? Um, is is the way that the American presidency is different than being a prime minister? Like we've seen, yeah, prime ministers of countries have successful careers and you know be returned to office basically not because that they're particularly ideological, but simply because they run government decently. Um, but I don't really think the presidency allows you to do that. One, because you're the head of state, in addition to being the head of government. You've got to be out there and you've got to kind of be leading, plus the unique situation that the United States was in, especially in this post-war era, really called for someone who was a, a voice on the international stage. 
And while I think Dewey thought he could become that, he wasn't yet. Uh, and so I think that hurts him. And, and certainly, like, all the people who are elected, you know, obviously, um, Roosevelt's credentials didn't need any repeating. Truman comes into the presidency as a greenhorn, but by the time he becomes reelected in 1948, he's been there, he's he's done the thing. Ike, of course, needed no, uh, you know, credential reinforcement. Um, and even, and, and I think it's interesting that when Kennedy and Nixon are going at it in 1960, both are very, very keen to establish their foreign policy bona fides, almost to the ex- exclusion of any a- other aspects of their campaign. That is kind of the main focus. So I, I think Dewey struggles to to do that. And and when your election basically boils down to vote for me, I'm a competent governor and a nice guy, <laughs> that just doesn't attract a whole lot of constituencies to you. You see, and- what he did, though, was his, his actual campaign was vote for me, I am not a Democrat. Yeah, I'm not FDR. And he was not Harry Truman, who was monumentally unpopular at the time, but was a feisty, ballsy little son of a bitch who was not going to give up the presidency to this idiot. So he went out, he got on his train, he ran an incredible coast-to-coast campaign on what a train he called the Ferdinand Magellan. And the thing is, huge crowds were coming out to see Truman, but reporters did not mention this because they had figured he'd already lost to Dewey because everyone hated him so much. So they would get drunk and play poker while Truman was addressing these massive crowds across the country, even in the South where Strom Thurmond was trying, was actively trying to undermine him. So I think Dewey's fatal flaw, aside from being a bland dullard, was that he believed his own press. He believed all the polls that said he was way ahead he believed when 50 political prognosticators out of 50 polled said that he was going to win and he became very complacent, very cocky. He was flattered by the attention of all these foreign leaders like Winston Churchill coming to see him and say, so when you're president, you can do this. And he did nothing to get out the vote. Republicans figured that he was a shoe in so it's like, why would I bother, why would I even want to take time off to go vote for this guy if he's so obviously going to win? And complacency in a front runner, fortunately, was never a problem again. <laughs> well, and it's pretty remarkable to be complacent when you've lost five consecutive presidential elections. But, you know, that's <laughs> that does take talent. Assuming You're right. like this is my moment. That's the confidence that we want in a leader. He Dewey was so confident, he created the first uh, presidential transition team to help oh. him get into the thing, which is oh, something we wouldn't we wouldn't actually see successfully until Carter. Uh, but <laughs> so it's like, we, yeah, this the uh, we're ridiculing him at the time uh, yeah. presumptuousness, but now that's just what we do. Why bother going through with the election? It's such a foregone conclusion that our next president is going to be Tom Dewey. So Which much is, so that there were newspapers printed saying Dewey defeats Truman. Yeah. Oh, I think they forgot your though. head, Tom yeah. Dewey. Such a good <laughs> <story>. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Crawfy. And Mr. Dewey is calling from America. Smashing. Let's put him through. 
Hello, Mr. Dewey. This is Princess Elizabeth. Howdy, Your Highness. I hope you don't mind the intrusion, but my wife, Frances, was wondering if you need any supplies for the royal baby that's on its way. Diapers, rattles, we no longer have rationing over here. Oh, well, please thank Mrs. Dewey for her kind offer, but assure her that Prince Philip and I are quite well prepared for the blessed event. Oh, besides, Mr. Dewey, haven't you provided the world a great enough gift with your marvelous decimal system? Oh, um, uh, that was Melville Dewey. He's dead. Oh. I'm Thomas Dewey. I just figured a gift would be a nice gesture from one future head of state to another. You're going to be the Queen of England. I'm going to be the President of the United States. Well, you do understand, Mr. Dewey, that my father, King George VI, is still alive? Oh, of course. I tried to call him, but his secretary said, send a letter instead so the king could collect the stamp. Oh, dear Papa. Oh, he's so clever. I hope you'll forgive me, Mr. Dewey, but I hadn't heard news of your election. Well, the election isn't until next month, but I'm so far ahead in the polls that the papers are already printing headlines that I've defeated Truman. It's not much of a horse race. My dear Mr. Dewey, must you compare a sport as noble as horse racing with an activity as vulgar as politics? Oh, blimey! Don't lock me up in the tower, princess. Winnie Churchill dropped by the other day to congratulate me on my upcoming victory. He said you're a pistol. Hmm. And I'm sure those were his exact words. Speaking of our former prime minister, you're doubtless aware that Winnie had time to drop by, as you so colorfully put it, because in 1945, voters ousted him in favor of Clement Attlee. Oh, you mean the sheep in sheep's clothing? Yeah, Winnie told a few yarns about that. And did such yarns caution you against hubris? Uh, you mean that Humphrey kid? He's not even running. I'm up against Harry Truman. That sad sack doesn't have a chance. Or do you so readily dismiss a man willing to use atomic weapons to win a dispute? Ha! Fat man and little boy were firecrackers compared to the bomb that Truman's presidency has become. Harry couldn't beat a two-timing, half-Negro, Quaker casino operator from Texas. Assuming you are none of those things, Mr. Dewey, I'd still be careful. In my short life, I've learned that nothing in this world is preordained. Except that you'll be queen and I'll be president. Did you know that my birth announcements describe me as a 10-pound Republican? It's written in the stars. And did you know that when I was born, I was the niece of the king? My father didn't ascend to the throne until my uncle David, whom you might know as Edward VIII, abdicated so that he might marry a twice-divorced horse-faced American. Well, that's a bit snobbish, if you don't mind my saying so. And I'll proudly snub any Nazi sympathizers. Mr. Dewey, I will be glad to speak to you if and when you take up residency in the White House. Until then, duty requires that I maintain a neutral stance toward both you and Mr. Truman. Hey, can you uh, still give me a few pointers about how to respond to veterans who call me a slacker? Oh, you didn't join the armed forces, Mr. Dewey? Oh, kind of busy running the state of New York, kind of like you were busy being a princess. Yes, 
Well, my duties as a princess included a role in the war effort, Mr. Dewey. I made radio addresses to both the morale. I enlisted in Britain's auxiliary territory service. I became a mechanic and a jeep driver and rose to the rank of subaltern. Oh, well, um, uh, thank you for your service. Hmm. And thank you for your support. Anytime. So, are you hoping for a little heir or heiress? I am hoping for a child who makes a wise choice of a spouse, Mr. Dewey, so that my family might be spared the turmoil that has plagued us in recent years. Well, I'm sure he, she, or it will marry well. Anyway, great chatting with you, Your Highness. God save the Queen. I mean it, ma'am. I don't question your sincerity. How could I? Indeed. I look forward to meeting you in person someday. Indeed. If during a tour of America, I should spot you on the side of the road with the rest of the parade attendees, I'll be sure to give you an extra wave. Ta-ta! Look well, one, one thing I knew, do know, because there was a really famous one-man play about Harry Truman called Give Him Hell, Harry. And there's a lovely scene where Harry Truman sings a victory song that was written for Thomas Dewey. Oh. And Dewey was, and it, the first line is, congratulations, Tom Dewey. And um, so Dewey was at least cocky enough in 48 to have a victory song in the can. Why wouldn't he Did be he cocky? commission it or someone else? <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, Chelsea, I didn't find a... Uh... Uh, campaign slogan, but uh, the Louisville Courier Journal summed up all of uh, Dewey's 48 campaigning as no presidential candidate in the future will be so inept that four of his major speeches can be boiled down to these historic four sentences. Agriculture is important. Our rivers are full of fish. You cannot have freedom without liberty. Our future lies ahead. Um, I really appreciate that second line. Uh, yes. The rivers are full of fish. Yeah, well, so I, I really like the rivers are full of fish because he's from Owasso, Michigan. This is really the vibe of Michiganders right here, y'all. Yeah, also, I feel like if you added a sentence, that was something that thirty years later could not have been said necessarily. <laughs> that's, that's fair. That's true. Wow. I think if you swapped if you swapped G, if you swapped the fish line for line about how you love Jesus, that's the modern day. Republican slogan. Man. You've got two minutes to make your pitch there. This table's reserved for libations with liberals, members only, and we don't have room for crashers. Are you quite certain? Because I'm researching the Adlai Stevenson, You Loved Me as a Loser, chapter of my next book. And I was hoping you and your fellow Democrats could offer some insight as to why your party nominated Adlai Stevenson twice back in the 1950s. Well, that's easy. Adlai Stevenson was one of the smartest men in America. A quick review of the past century or so reveals that Democrats prefer smart presidents to stupid ones. Are you quite certain of Stevenson's towering intellect? As early as 1956, Stevenson was warning America about a potential Nixon presidency. He said that if Eisenhower dies, the trickster would turn the country into a land of scandal and scare, the land of sly innuendo, the poison pen, 
the anonymous phone call, and hustling, pushing, shoving. The land of smash and grab and anything to win. Sounds about right, doesn't it? Yes, but it's odd how his prescience failed him about his own candidacy. Did he seriously think that Americans would ever elect a tall, skinny, eloquent Democrat with a funny name from Illinois? Bouncer! Well, you know, I, I've been listening to this conversation and just grinning from ear to ear about, you know, presumptive candidates, about parties assuming certain things, about, you know, about about whether you're front runners. And I just, boy, I'm glad the Democrats were sort of watching what happened with Thomas Dewey the previous two cycles so that they wouldn't repeat that same cycle. Oh, wait a minute. Not only do they repeat the cycle, they do it in the immediate two cycles when the Republicans finally get a guy that can get in the White House and they decide to, in a lot of ways, lather, rinse, repeat only using Democratic soap with Adlai E. Stevenson II. And Democratic soap just smells better. Personally, I have a <laughs> I clip. cleaner and fresher. It has a moral scent to it. Be, I have be, a watching justice. be watching on Patreon for Democratic soap by next brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where's our swag shop, y'all? Right? Well, okay, so this kind of fits into that. I have a tie clip that's a holographic, albeit black and white, which seems like an interesting. Of Adlai Stevenson? There. For Adlai Stevenson, it, on, if you look at it from one angle, it's his face, which I don't mm. know why you'd want to look at it from that angle. And then if you change the angle slightly, it says vote Adlai. Yep. And... So, so, so good old Adlai. Again, a very different candidate than everybody we've been talking about. From a hardcore political dynasty. Definitely some, I mean, I, I don't think it's a stretch to say he had this sense of noblesse oblige about, about being a public servant, about running, arguably about even running when he didn't really think even he had a chance to win. A very clear personality that was so specific that, and I love this detail, he was apparently a model for Peter Sellers for President Merton Muffley in Dr. Strangelove. And for Henry Fonda in The Best Man. Mm -hmm. Henry Fonda kept playing Adlai Stevenson when Peter Sellers couldn't. So one, I think you're always in a bad place when there's an incumbent who can run for re-election in your party and they decide they won't do that. And then someone calls you and says, hey, you wanna, you wanna be the guy? That's mm -hmm. never a question you want to answer yes to. Generally never. speaking, that you're walking into a bad situation. Right. And and I think... And Joe, who am I running against? A war hero. Oh, okay. And we wanted him to run for our side. We just He just decided to run for the other side. And you we're win? still <laughs> stuck in a quagmire on the other side of the world. And yeah. Not a great situation. No. But now, you know, one of the things we've talked about in, in a lot of these episodes is what some of us were taught in. And I do remember that 
Adelaide kind of had the reputation or somehow it was taught to me that he was someone that was very aware that he was not likely to be president, but he felt it was important to run a legitimate campaign for Democratic Party values, for Democratic Party issues. Certainly a lot of those issues carry through in the Eisenhower administration. Um, you know, and even in, again, why did he run again? You know, that that open question. You know, a good reminder was in 1955, Eisenhower had a very serious heart attack, which may, may raise the possibility, A, that he wouldn't run, and B, we would end up with Richard Nixon. Who we missed a bullet there, didn't we? But we delayed maybe, a bullet there, Joe. Yeah. yeah, that's true. But I guess there was enough of a gap of, well, maybe? Well, and sometimes, sometimes you think, you know, you can ride out the coattails of political dynasty and you can just kind of, you know, be the last gasp and get in there. Um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, native Illinoisans, uh, that Stevenson was off-putting. He was not the most personable of individuals. I'm shocked. Well, he he had a little bit of skill in communicating, but he was a very, and he, he apparently had a very dry sense of humor, which given the era should have helped him a little further because we're getting into the era of, you know, where stand-up is starting to become a thing. But... Was he dry or did he just, people just assume that it was humor? It was humorous to the people he hung out with and the people he hung out with very much were intellectuals not the common man and he was Again, very my question <laughs> we take you now to a basement club in the heart of greenwich village new york city in 1959 well i don't like frozen dinners they leave my soul cold Mowing grass is boring while I smoke my old gold. So give me something real and don't come at me and scold about my dumb suburban life at the bar of the Main Street. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mrs. Jane Smith, for your fine musical performance. So one more round of applause for her. Can't say I blame you. Anyway, thank you again for coming out to the Roach Pit. Greenwich Village is home for new underground talent just waiting to stick its head into the sunlight to see if it can live. Up next on tonight's open mic, a gentleman who, it says here, has decided to try to change his career after not being able to progress at his previous one. So uh, he is here, this says, to try to make you laugh on purpose. Okay, hope you're ready. Might be a good time for another highball. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present to you the comedic stylings of Adele I. Stevenson. A round of applause. Yes, yes, good evening. Uh, my name is Adlai Stevenson. I ran for president twice, and boy, are my legs tired. Uh, hello? Later! Okay. Anyway, I would like to thank everyone for coming out tonight. Uh, as the MC mentioned, my name is Adlai. 
and I am changing my career after trying to run for president of the United States twice. You just said that. Uh, I don't have to have you repeat that. You just said that too. Uh, very <laughs> funny. If I may try to continue. This isn't your act? Uh, I will try to continue until hell freezes over, young man. Oh, I am so put in my place. Thank you. Uh, as I was saying, I ran for president twice, and my wife tells me I lost twice because I'm so boring. How boring are you? Well, I'm about to tell you. Then get to it. Uh, yes, yes, yes. My wife tells me I lost twice because I'm so boring. Only I could make Dwight Eisenhower look exciting. Was that the joke? Yeah, yes, it was. No wonder you lost twice. <laughs> okay, well, uh, ju just a second. Uh, I do have an amusing anecdote for you. I have been told I have a very delightful and dry wit, like the time I was governor of the great state of Illinois. I thought you said you ran for president. Uh, governor was my previous job. Uh, may I tell my amusing anecdote? I don't know. Can you? <laughs> anyway, uh, I remember the time. I remember the Illinois legislature passed a bill declaring that stray cats... Oh, this is good. You'll like it. Declaring that stray cats should be declared a public nuisance. I thought this was silly, so I wrote the following. Uh, let me get the wording exactly right. Um... You can't remember your favorite story? Um, I wrote, quote, The problem of cat versus bird is as old as time. If we attempt to solve it by legislation, <laughs> what else may we be called upon to take sides in? The age-old problem of dog versus cat? Bird versus bird, or <laughs> even bird versus worm? <laughs> For these reasons, and not because I love birds the less or cats the more, I veto and withhold my approval from Senate Bill number 93. Close quote. People told you that was funny? It, it's late in Springfield. Chirp, chirp. Now that's chirp. uncalled for. Thank you very much. One more round of applause for the comedic stylings of Adley. Adley Stevenson. You can get your complimentary beverage at the bar, Adley. I'm I'm not a two drink whore, young man. It'll take more than two. Anyway, we hope you belly up to the bar after that, and let's move on to our last open mic act of the night, the pride of. The pride of Oswaso, Michigan, the comedic silence of Thomas Dewey. Good evening, ladies and germs. I just came from running for president twice, and my goodness, are my feet and legs tired. <laughs> <laughs> and that's my material. Can I at least posit a little bit that of all like the the people we've talked about, um, like people who ran a whole bunch of times and could have become president. Um, if, if we're going to like, again, 
going into territory that we are forbidden from going into, but we always do <laughs> the alternative <laughs> histories. Um, we we talked at length about you know what an alternative play presidency might might have looked like. We didn't really for for Brian, although I, I think when we did the McKinley episode, we kind of talked about their kind of differing views on stuff. Of course, a Deb's presidency was never in the cards, but would have been a dramatic departure from any president we've ever had. Um, would a Stevens presidency have been materially different from an Eisenhower presidency? I mean, we presume that it would have been internationalist and anti-communist overseas. It would have continued the New Deal probably more heartily than Eisenhower did. But Eisenhower that, yes. acquiesced at least to the existence of the New Deal and continued to um, you know, maybe Stevenson would have been a little bit more aggressive pursuing civil rights than Eisenhower was, but of course, then Stevenson would have had to deal with the Southern Wing of the Democratic Party, which was still a force to be reckoned with. So, I don't know, and Chelsea, I guess this is more of a question for you. How how would a Stevenson presidency have been different from what we got? So, <clears throat> I think, I think a Stevenson presidency would have raised the level of political thought at that point more than an Eisenhower presidency did, right? Um, Eisenhower was not a politician, whereas Stevenson was a, a good politician and a good politician in that he was a smart politician, right? Not as in a good politician like we talked about Lyndon Johnson was. And Lyndon Johnson was a great politician, but not because of his intelligence, right? Because he was able to get, he was effective in getting what he wanted. Stevenson is a good politician because he has that sort of policy-minded brain that we've talked about the kind of difference between um, different kinds of presidents. And, and I feel like if we had had a higher level of political rhetoric in the 50s, we might have been able to cultivate more open minds in the 60s and 70s, right? And that's super wishful thinking, but who knows? So your argument, and I think this is this is a really interesting one, is that Eisenhower, in his kind of sleepy avuncularness, yeah. almost put the nation to, to sleep politically. Just right. like... It's Don't worry about all what the CIA is doing. Yeah. The economy's doing fine. Go yep. back to bed. Yep. I'll wake you up if anything happens. Yep. And and then the, the nation kind of accepted that. All right. Well, no, well, all, all of that is true. But then you had the younger generation that got a little antsy, got a little jumpy, wanted to do a little something. And so instead of just watching a lot of TV, they turned to that demon rock and roll music so the way you're talking it makes me feel like had adelaide been president we would have had more politicians but perhaps never have had rock and roll i am not saying that eisenhower that. led to elvis that is such an interesting theory <laughs> uh, i mean yeah. i just say the first official rock and roll record came out in 1951 by ike turner of all people before Eisenhower was elected, I'm talking Rocket 88. Rocket 88. Okay. Rocket 88 was recorded during the Truman administration. You can come on this show and throw all of your historical counterfactuals you like, but if you start Absolutely. trying, if you start trying to screw up the history of rock and roll, then, mm. then you're in Back to the Future territory. Yep. <laughs> not, there ain't nobody here but the show to do that. Is that right, Tommy? 
Uh, well, you know, I, I do like your point, Joe, that the Eisenhower presidency, and we talked about this, does inspire a kind of countercultural movement of young people who are dissatisfied with with the political discourse at the time. And I, I do feel like Stevenson with his, I think, very, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Balding. Oh, don't, don't. Don't, don't make fun of Egghead. Why? It's easy. It's fun. He's gone. Oh, Egghead. Um, he, um, I think he understood, he offered, he and his ideas about America's place in the world allowed, made space for young people in a way that Eisenhower's administration did not. And so I, I think there would have, we would have seen a younger, more invigorated Democratic Party. Honestly, when we really needed one. Um, going well, into the 60s. Well, I think a uh, more interesting question. Uh, if there's not a Eisenhower uh, presidency or if there's, you know, just the one uh, term, would we have gotten a Nixon presidency? Ooh. I don't I don't know because Stevenson so despised Nixon like friends of his everybody despised Nixon I think we made that pretty clear like friends friends of Stevenson who were like I didn't I don't think Adlai hated anyone like his true friends were like oh no he hated Richard Nixon I wonder if a Stevenson presidency kind of deflates the Republican Party and makes Nixon's rise less less likely. I have to say, so so Stevenson was a two-time loser, but you know something? He worked like hell to potentially have become a three-time loser in 1960. He loses in 60 as well. He wanted it. By the time we get to 1960, yeah, he wanted it. Um, so he, lo- he he's such a loser. He failed at losing. Well, I mean, he, he didn't really like Kennedy. Think he could beat Kennedy for the he, nomination. He thought Kennedy was too young. He thought he had earned it. Eleanor Roosevelt still backed him. Henry Fonda was working for him. And who killed his his nomination once and for all? Joseph Kennedy. LBJ. Richard J. Okay. Daly. I really thought you were going to say what they want. He wanted to see if he could get the Illinois delegation oh. behind him. Yeah. And Daly said, there are 59 votes for Kennedy, two for you. Oh. You do not have the support. <laughs> to which Stevenson, not being dumb, said, is it because you don't support me or because there is no support? And Daly said, there is no support. So that was the moment JFK locked the nomination, though he did end up being UN ambassador and had that great Cuban Missile Crisis speech. So he didn't, you know, a lot of these, I mean, Clay still had a career. Dubs kind of got, you you know, uh, Brian is this orator. um, And Secretary of State. Yeah, and the only, yeah, the only with Dewey just kind of got branded as you freaking loser. Like, he was an amicable loser, but he was still a loser. 
right, right on the golf course. That's how likable he was oh, and how bland. Hadley did not last much past his uh, 1960s, his, you know, his Missiles of October. Zinger. Zingers. Is a Russian because he died in 1965. Fortunately, as a relatively young man, he was only 65. Hello, Doctor Nair. Why, Miss Man? Well, of all the people to run into by chance on a dark, empty street in the middle of the night, I'd call it a very fortunate accident. By the way, I've read your advanced copy of your new book, Even the Losers. That's rather remarkable, considering I haven't finished writing it yet. Really? That's funny. I could have sworn that I was just holding a copy of a manuscript with your name on the front page. I especially enjoyed the final chapter, H. Ross Perot, Beautiful Loser. But I haven't even decided how I'm going to approach Perot's two failed presidential candidacies yet. Such modesty, Dr. Nair. I really admired your theory that H. Ross Perot convinced people that they should never vote for an eccentric tech billionaire with a global network of undercover operatives. Your last sentence was perfect. It was never a problem again. Oh, that's a brilliant line, but... I didn't write it. But people will think you did. That's what matters. I don't see why they would. You need a ride back to your hotel, Dr. Nair. Um, no, I'm content to walk. I'm afraid I have to insist. Why is a black Jeep pulling up to the curb? Because a black limousine would be a little too obvious, don't you think? Bon voyage, Dr. Nair. Let's wrap it up as best yeah. we can, then. I was going to say, James, so we don't bring up counterfactuals. Yeah. I mean, this the, old the white Obama? Like, <laughs> Illinoisian? Yes. Yeah. Policy wonk? Yep. Highly educated, but still kind of has, like, a popular veneer? Yep. Zingers, he thinks are clever, clever, but no one else really does. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Obama that's was fair. was solid, solid dad joke territory. Right. Well, I don't know. There um, were comics who thought that Obama had good timing. They still do. <laughs> he did. Yeah. But 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 excellent segue because speaking of squeaky voice people who laughed at their own material, we come to our final multi loser subject. We're just reading about some of his stuff. A weird dude, but boy, some crazy polarities in his life. Ross Perot, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, God. H. Yeah. Ross Perot. Mm -hmm. Depends on. Who... to triumph by playing Smeagol in the Lord of the Rings movies. <laughs> <laughs> he was also my favorite recurring character on the Amanda Bynes show. <laughs> <laughs> And it often opens the question, which imitation was Dana Carvey's best? What, Ross Perot oh. or George H.W. Bush? Because, again... Both were good. Both were good. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it was the guy from the Turtle Club. Where does one start with old Ross? Probably the fact that, okay, he graduated from the Naval Academy. I don't know. Did he ever see active combat? I don't think no. so. Not that I no. know of. Nope. 
So he went to work for IBM, made enough money for working for IBM that he started EDS. What the hell did EDS do? Electronic data processing. He is one of our first computer billionaires. He is the first tech bro? Yes. Pretty close. Very first much tech so. Bro. Well, the first tech billionaire. I don't know how much of a bro he ever was. That's, that's <laughs> very true. Was he a billionaire? Yes. Yes. He sold EDS to General Motors in 1984. In 1984. For $2.4 billion. I mean, was that debt? Was it stock? Was it cash? Stock. Stock. And uh, and by the way, and this is something I didn't realize, he was the guy that funded Next for Steve Jobs when Steve Jobs in was in between Apple. So he oh, really, wow. I mean, yeah, one of the very first computer multi Yeah. Just call him a tech bro. It's fine. It's yeah. short. Can we call him a tech bubba instead? Also, I don't know why, but when when someone was asking if he was a tech if he was the first tech bro in my weird historian brain, I was like, nah, man, that's Alexander Graham Bell. He's the <laughs> or Thomas Edison. <laughs> Edison was more of a patent jacker. Edison is the Elon Musk of his time, and I mean that as an insult. <laughs> <laughs> History literally repeats itself, you guys. Mm -hmm. yeah. But one of the things that does make me realize is that over the last 20, 25, 30 years, the myth of the CEO president has become such a thing. Obviously, we have had two theoretical NBA presidents, which did not do very well. But Perot, when he did run in 92 and 96, that was one of his big things. I'm going to run government like a business. So, Sylvia, you've got an MBA. Are you running for office anytime soon? <laughs> if the people ask me, I will not turn them down. <laughs> oh, very Washingtonian. Right? Can I, actually, can I ask you a somewhat serious question? Because I have been told by other people that have went to MBA schools, because you see people with MBAs running create a lot of different companies, including companies that one would think they don't know anything about. And what I have been told is that, well, the way you're taught to think as an MBA allows you and gives you this ability to run any corporation. You just apply the same principles. You know, Your opinion. <laughs> that thinking was pretty prevalent when I went to graduate school and it got shot down after, uh, this is really obscure, but uh, there was a consortium that bought a retailer uh, that had stores in the on the East Coast, Miller and Rhodes, and they had no retail background. They did tank it. And then people rethought and said, oh, maybe you do need to know a little something about the industry. Certain principles are not transferable. But certainly uh, that attitude is out there to this day. <sighs> not as much but there are still i mean there are people that still believe in trickle down theory so <laughs> yeah there are still people it's that not say... going to die aside from balancing the budget what was the fire that got perot to run was it ego um, that a lot of CEOs are so used to not being told no or hearing no that he thought that he could do it. 
I think well, he hated sure the there pushes. There were plenty of CEOs who looked at that, the situation at the economy and, you know, thought about it. But well, what he made him say, I can be the guy? I, he was not a fan of the Republican Party. Didn't like the Bushes. Also campaigned against McCain in oh. 2008. He uh, endorsed W's yeah. candidacy four days before the election in 2000. So. In part because he was a he was a huge supporter of Planned Parenthood. Very pro-choice. Probably for eugenics purposes, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I, I got to say this for him and everything. I have not read a ton about him and he predates my political awareness by like one election cycle, I think. Uh, <laughs> at all. Yeah. You know, but um, rub it he in. Does, he does seem like a true uh, like independent candidate where I'm like, you are kind of all over the map here. You're not you're leaning a little conservative and then you surprise me. And I wonder, I, Joe, if that's actually like part of the impetus for his for his wanting to run in '92. Is he I, he sees the efficiencies that technology has the potential ha, has brought to the business world, and he thinks to himself, "Well, you're just the same, right? You just transfer it over to the government. We'll make the government so much more efficient with technology." Well, there, there's a little bit of a cultural shift that happens in 92. Again, we kind of talked about the rise of cable TV. Um, you, you know, Arsenio, it's sort of the year Nirvana knocked off Michael Jackson. And there's a big Figuratively, off the top of the charts, Joe means. Yeah, I mean, you know, that number one album. So there's sort yeah. of this weird... There's, there's Nirvana this wouldn't kill Michael Jackson happens. until several decades later. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. 92 was just a very weird year. And again, we'll undoubtedly explore more when we get to H.W. and Clinton. But as I, again, refreshing my notes, it was so weird that before, just before we get to the main presidential conventions, people were legitimately thinking this was going to be a three-way race. Perot was leading and leading comfortably. Yeah. 39% of the vote, which led, you know, we were thinking broker convention, all of that. And then Ross's weirdness just starts spilling into spilling out. Didn't he claim that someone had someone made threats against his family, so he dropped out of the presidential race? His In daughter's wedding, as I recall. Yeah. Yep. Was that uh, threat and ever substantiated? I don't know. Actually, I, the one that I was going to say, besides the weird, like someone's trying to thwart my daughter's wedding was um he got really paranoid and fired some of his like close so right the the Perot's campaign had both democratic and republican hamilton right? jordan and ed rollins so um not a natural pairing no but he he fired one of the kind of like republican leaning folks in in his uh campaign staff and that was rollins no rollins oh, left oh rollins left okay so perot fired someone ah. um and who worked with rollins and rollins like fine i'll just leave too uh, <laughs> right and so already like you have weird paranoia uh in in within the pro campaign so rollins said that someone in Perot's campaign called him a bush plant with a CIA connection. Yes. 
Mm. This is it. And even better, <laughs> even better, the specific thing about his daughter was that Perot was convinced somebody was creating digitally altered photos of his daughter's wedding. And somehow this was all meant to be framed so that he had to leave. And, and by the way, Perot's doing all of this on Larry King's show. <laughs> well, I think it's so fair to say that Atroz Perot was a very stable genius. Uh, yeah. Okay, let me throw, okay, throwing in the inflammatory question now. Cool. On Perot. He was the first alternative media sensation since he built his national reputation appearing on basic cable talk shows. I think he was like a practically a co-host of Larry King. Yeah. And my Perot loving friend in 1992, I'm like, why do you want that man to be president? His token defense, and he meant it in dead serious earnest, was he's great on talk shows. So was Ross Perot an early harbinger of future, like, internet sensations and future? <laughs> Our next I, YouTube president. I was um, actually going to ask, like, well, oh, it's just before Fox News starts. Fox News is mid-late 90s. He, he never really started. sat down for many interviews. He always said, I want to get my message to the people the other part of that was he didn't lend himself to be immediately fact-checked uh, by real journalists and reporters. So these were the cable presidents. This was the era of the cable candidacy. I mean, cable TV was the big thing in the 90s. I think cable's coming out party is really Gulf War, right? CNN was able to get 24-hour coverage pretty much of what was happening, both what the coalition was doing and what was happening on the ground in Baghdad. And in some ways, that's the start of the 24-hour news cycle. Um, which has been super healthy for America. <laughs> we love it. Which was an inevitable development of media. You know, media had increased from, hmm, I wonder if we'll find out what happened six months from now, um, to, you know, with the invention of telegraph uh, and telegrams, you could find out usually within 24 to 40 to 48 hours and be in a newspaper headline to, by the time, you know, you've got... AP and, and global television, you know, usually within a few hours or by that evening, you'd know what had happened. Of course, with, the, you know, we talked about the Kennedy assassination being broken into TV and live time. Now there's a channel you can turn to to see what's happening around the world as it happens right then and there, no matter what time of day it is. Why did Perot eventually run? Well, he claimed earlier on a different Larry King episode that if he got his name on the ballot in all 50 states, he'd run. And he did. did. <laughs> so that's why in October, he said, okay, I'll run. Uh, uh, yeah. States of America, currently unavailable to take your call as I am working to stop the waste of corporations while keeping my family free from secret agents and spies. Please leave a message and I will have one of my aides investigate to make sure you are who you say you are and then shortly return your call thereafter. God bless America.
Hi, Mr. Perot. This is Wendy from the Larry King Show. Listen, Larry wanted me to call. Uh, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. Wendy, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. Hi, Wendy. Hi, Ross. Hey, did I just read that you're dropping out of the presidential race? Well, you see what these dang um FBI agents are trying to do with my daughter's wedding? I've seen the story. Spy warfare, I tell you. I never trusted those dang bushes as far as I could spit. Larry is, was very upset to hear about all of this. I would hope he was. And that's why I'm calling. Larry is hoping you will come on tonight's show to talk about why you came to your decision. Well, well, you know, I absolutely would do that in a heartbeat. Your boss has been so generous with his time. But Wendy, I, I got to protect my daughter, don't I? I hope you and Larry will understand. Larry, Ross says he can't come on. Wait, 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 little lady, don't be like my daughter through all this. I can explain. Ross, how the hell are you? I'm wondering about this decision of yours. Well, here's the deal, Larry. The government is so afraid of me, they'd ruin my daughter's upcoming nuptials. Now, as much as I am fully aware of the conspiracy, that is being unfolded at my expense, I cannot force my family to accept such a decision. And that's totally understandable, Ross. You know, I think if you said that on my show tonight, people would understand it in a way they can't if they're just reading it off a press release. Well, 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 I gotta admit, you got a point there. And, you know, Ross, you handle that statement right, you just may be able to Come back into the race once you have your daughter's wedding. As long as the FBI doesn't ruin the wedding. Oh, I would never allow that. I know you wouldn't. So you want to come on the Larry King show tonight and talk about it? Larry, if I didn't know better, I'd say you were trying to manipulate me so I can stay on your show to get ratings. Would that be so wrong? Sure, but, but what the heck? Do I need to show up at a studio? No, we can set up a call. It's kind of a breaking news story. It's what CNN does, you know. Yeah, good thing you boys don't just throw crazy opinions out there by anyone who would say anything just to get on the TV and run for president. Attaching those opinions to a news story is what makes it news. And that's what makes you news. Regular time? When do you call you 10 minutes before we go on? That's good, that's good. Oh, oh, the people putting the tents up for the wedding are here. I need to get the electronic sniffing dogs out there to make sure there's nothing nefarious with all that burlap. Talk to you night, Lair. Our pleasure, Ross. <sighs> For a second, I thought he wouldn't come on. He's like a moth to the flame, Wendy. That's why he's gold. Should I get that? <laughs> we know who it is. Texarkana, Texas. Good afternoon. How did you know it was me? Did the FBI tell you? Damn them! Here's my question. Was it Perot who got, like, you know, if, if it, you know, so obviously 1992 is this weird year where you have what had been a strong incumbent running into political headwinds, um, yeah. mostly due to economic issues, although you know, it was, it was, I guess, 92 is a bad economic year, but it wasn't 1929. It, it wasn't was actually picking, it was yeah, actually it wasn't 2008. picking up. 
did Perot create the discontentment? Like, or could someone else, if someone else had been running as a third party candidate and had, you know, had been on Larry King enough, could they have also attracted 20% of the vote? Was it simply a, an anti-establishment vote against anyone else who was running? Or was there something about Perot that captured the popular imagination that like, oh, this guy, this guy's for real. I think him being a former CEO and yeah. having created a business and then sold it, gave him the veneer of, yeah. you know, oh my God, this man is brilliant. He's, and, yeah. he's done the corporate thing. So that's what we need to do. We need to run the government like a corporation. It's like, yeah, no, no. Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's so interesting because you do coming out of the Reagan years and then looking at who eventually wins, right? Looking at Clinton, who is, who is liberal, but in that like neoliberal vein that we have talked about already, uh, Perot's like business success becomes this, this really important asset. I mean, I don't think, W is it W voters who went to is it HW voters who voted for Perot, potential Republicans, or did he bring people into the political process? According to a New York Times exit poll, 38% of Perot voters were going to vote for Bush, 38% of the voters of Perot voters would have voted for Clinton. 20% of the votes came from self-described liberals, 27% from self-described conservatives. 53% from self-described moderates. The overwhelming majority of Perot voters income between 15 and 49,000 annually. That's 57% and the other 29% more than $50,000. So kind of a middle up. So the one thing you say is he it's kind of a middle to upper class phenomenon, which if you think about it, who could afford cable in those days? That's what I was just <laughs> going to say, man. Ah, the Truman oh. factor. <laughs> Larry King, you, you were a kingmaker and you didn't even know it or didn't really care. Except he wasn't because Perot mm. lost. There was, there was a moment. Mm -mm, nope. You don't think so? A third party candidate, I'm sorry, a third party candidate is never going to win a, a U.S. election. But he yeah, didn't I mean, have a party I mean, at the time. There was no reform party when he was running. He was an independent. Roosevelt. He was an independent, though, right? He's yeah. he's not a Democrat and he's not a Republican. So many people vote straight ticket that an independent will will a third party an independent will never win. Well, I, I think there's there's a first question like, could he even find find electors right to, yeah. to go like me, for like it. he could get on the ballot, point. but then like if if the state. Yeah. You know, votes that way. Is he going to be able to find however many, you know, faithful electors to actually pass their electoral votes for him? Um, it's just it's hard to run without the party apparatus. And yeah. and, and the laws have essentially been written to to protect mm -hmm. the duopoly. Yep. And um, there, there, there were yeah. two states where Perot finished second. In Maine, he finished second. Bush finished third. So he had Clinton <laughs> win Maine. And then in Utah, Perot was second, Clinton was third, helped Bush hold Utah. That makes sense. Yeah. Like, yes, I mean, Utah, Utah hates Democrats, but man, they would really hate Bill, Bill Clinton. Yeah. I think I think they're insulted that he sleeps with that many women and isn't married to all of them. <laughs> right?
honorable mentions of losers. Of Ooh. people who, who maybe didn't run multiple times, but are still notable losers. Hmm. Um, if we're talking about third-party people, Pat Buchanan, I feel like, is probably the... Like, if you're talking about, like, people who kind of presaged the direction of the Republican Party, Pat Buchanan's campaign kind of filled in a lot of those, sketched the outline of what became the Trumpist movement, I think, pretty but well. I will not put... Yeah. Pat well, Buchanan, Buchanan was such a Nazi. Honorable. I mean, Nader. But Nader, actually, well, no, actually, see, James, I would amend candidates who lost but influenced future campaigns daniel webster daniel webster i mean i just wanted an excuse to talk about bernie Woodhull. bernie falls in that category mm-hmm. i would argue oh Perot clearly yes. falls in that category yeah and leave us not forget forget candidates who won the popular vote but still managed to lose the election <clears throat> hillary gore gore, gore. Samuel Tilden. Tilden. God. I Andrew Jackson. Multiple. Well, Henry Clay, multiple losers, but incredibly influential. Whereas uh, Thomas Dewey, multiple losers, didn't influence a damn thing. uh, Yeah, I just wanted to talk about Victoria Woodhull. I think she's cool. (laughs) She is awesome. Here's here's the describe her, please. We have Uh, Victoria Woodhull, leader uh, a leader in the women's suffrage movement. Uh, who ran for president in 1872, notably uh, before she could vote by several yeah. decades. Uh, and uh, this is, uh, uh, I, I love this part. Many historians and, and authors agree that she was the first woman to run for the presidency, but some disagree because, not because she couldn't vote, but because she wasn't 35 yet when she ran. <laughs> but she was on her second marriage by that point. She was on her second marriage. She, uh, in addition to just being a general suffragette. So that made her a spiritual 35-year-old? Or... <laughs> and on that cheery note, we'll thank everybody to be speaking of third, no, not we'll thank everybody for speaking of the multiple losers, and who knows? Maybe we will do a show on third parties. Why not? DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Bucola, Sandy Baikowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Join us on the Trident Network and listen to us on World Perspectives Radio Chicago on Live365.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.